This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 14th and 15th of April 2016, the Caldor Centre was proud to co-sponsor a symposium at All Souls College, Oxford, to celebrate the scholarship of Professor Guy Gurren-Gill. The symposium brought together leading international refugee law scholars and practitioners. The following podcast is a presentation by Helene Lambert, titled Temporary Refuge from War, Cusprey International Law and the Syria Crisis. And I'd l- I would like to start by saying that I too would like to express my gratitude to Jane in particular, but also to Jeff and, and, and Catherine for inviting me today. It's, it's an absolute honour to be here. Um, but more importantly, uh, it's an occasion to say uh, thank you to Guy for his immense support over the years. So, uh, Guy, merci pour uh, <laughs> tout. Um, and in fact, I changed slightly the title of my presentation and because I realized how short it would have to be. And I decided to um, um, focus particularly on the collective dimension of temporary refuge. Um, and I will focus in particular on the argument made over the years by Guy that international law enshrines an obligation to provide a temporary refuge in situation of large influx of large-scale influx of asylum seekers, and I will make a few remarks regarding this obligation in the context of the mass flight of Syrian refugees. Now, the practice of temporary refuge emerged in the early part of the 20th century, at a time when state practice indicated that the only sort of refuge was permanent asylum. Its purpose is to provide a practical, humane and immediate solution in cases of large-scale influx of refugees pending the finding of a permanent home. It has been identified as the customary rule of international law by numerous scholars based on a considerable amount of consistent state practice across the globe accepted as law. In a groundbreaking article published in 1986 in the Virginia Journal of International Law, Guy argued, and I quote, that the essentially moral obligation to assist refugees and to provide them with refuge or safe haven has, over time and in certain contexts, developed into a legal obligation. In the same article, Guy questions asylum understood as permanent residence as the most appropriate solution to refugee problems. And he maintained that it is a mistake to make the leap from non-refoulement to asylum. Rather, he offered, which we've just heard from Jean-François, an understanding of non-refoulement through time that promotes admission, and again I quote, that promotes admission and emphasizes the international community's responsibility to find solutions to large-scale influxes of asylum seekers. The suggestion, basically, was that people displaced by events such as armed conflicts are people in distress, 
and that when requested, states have an obligation to take all necessary measures to assist other states in which people are found or admitted in distress and to come up with durable solutions such as resettlement. Some three decades later, in a chapter entitled Non-Hofoulement, Country Refuge and the New Asylum Seekers, in a book co-edited by Jean-François himself and David Cantor, Guy re-emphasized that temporary refuge pending a lasting or durable solution is a matter of obligation. He further reminded us that the protection of persons displaced by war is not only about admission, there is also a collective dimension which engages the institutional and the international community at large. This is a crucial point, particularly in the context of Syrian refugees. Indeed, as explained by Perlus and Hartmann in 1986 in another article published in the same um, uh, issue of the Virginia Journal of International Law, temporary, prote- uh, temporary refuge, they explain, is premised on, and I quote, polite or explicit quid pro quos that states other than those of temporary refuge would screen and grant resettlement to a large proportion of displaced persons. Should offers of resettlement not be forthcoming, material assistance, including financial help, to the countries of refuge was expected and was generally given. So to recap, in the context of civilians fleeing armed conflict, the customary international law rule of temporary refuge imposes an obligation to admit and not return anyone to a situation of risk to life. It further imposes an obligation to provide basic rights and for international cooperation toward durable solutions and shared solutions. According to Guy, the rule of temporary refuge sits within the customary duty of rescuing people in distress, which he explains in today's parlance means people in need of international protection. The important point being, and I think it's been made by Jean-François very clearly this morning as well, The important point being that it does not fit neatly within international refugee law, which is concerned more with the protection from persecution on particular grounds and protection against risk to life or freedom, again on particular grounds, and the corollary rights and duties. (coughs) To be sure, the rule of temporary refuge and the rule of non-refoulement may occasionally overlap, but the two are distinct. Indeed, Guy calls for, and I quote, delinking the concepts of refuge and non-refoulement and in developing refuge itself as the overarching principle of protection for those displaced by armed conflicts, but also by any massive violations of human rights. 
What I want to do in the remaining few minutes is examine the customary rule of temporary refuge in the context of the Syrian conflict and current practice. Now, I'll focus here on daily practice in three neighbouring states to Syria, particularly Jordan, Lebanon and Turkey, as well as EU member states. In addition, I'll refer to the position of the EU as a supranational organisation as further evidence of manifestations of state practice. Now, obviously, my discussion is going to be very general and I'm going to have to make my remark quite succinct and perhaps a bit superficial too. But the discussion is based on a much larger paper which considers in detail this state practice drawing on the latest International Law Commission uh, draft conclusions on the identification of customary international law and the special rapporteur report um, prior to the adoption of these, uh, these conclusions. So starting with Turkey, Lebanon and Jordan, well, as we know, these countries have adopted largely open-door policies since the beginning of the conflict in mid-2011, None of the refugees have been protected under the Refugee Convention or Refugee Protocol, which is inapplicable in these three countries. Jordan and Lebanon are simply not parties to, to it. Turkey only recognizes refugees coming from Europe. Thus, the customary international rule of temporary refuge has been the cornerstone of these states' response to the large number of Syrian refugees arriving in their territory. Despite instances of non-entry at the border, non-Hofumont has remained largely respected, at least until recently, because now it seems to be pretty much out of the window. If at first minimum socioeconomic rights were granted quite generously, five years of conflict and increased number of refugees have put a huge strain on these countries and their local residents. However, the expected response from the international community to alleviate the burden on these countries has not been forthcoming. And that is this collective dimension referred to by Guy Goodwin in his work. Turning to the EU member states, despite efforts from countries like Germany to accept large numbers of refugees, state sovereignty in this area remains very strong. This is apparent in states generally justifying their actions on moral grounds in an area where declarations of moral obligation may, you can argue, constitute opinion US. Promises of resettlement and other humanitarian solutions have been made in practice, but these have been too slow and insufficient in number. Generally, Syrian refugees already in the EU have been processed through the regular asylum procedures and the majority has been provided refugee status or substitute protection status. Now, although both these statuses are temporary, according to the EU Qualification Directive, in practice, most member states consider them to be permanent. That said, disparity in standards and conditions between EU countries continues to exist. 
Thus, despite public acknowledgement of the crisis in inverted commas, it has been, it seems, business as usual. Moving on to the EU level, here the solidarity of the EU, which you may recall is one of the Stockholm Protocol uh, Program 2010 key priorities, this solidarity has come to be seriously challenged. Both the EU Temporary Protection Directive and Article 78, Paragraph 3 of the Treaty on uh, the Functioning of the EU, together with Article 80 of that same treaty, foresee a solidarity mechanism in the case of mass and sudden influx of refugees. However, the Temporary Protection Directive still today remains unused, primarily because the Commission, protect, uh, the Commission believes that the Member States' national systems of international protection have been capable of dealing with the number of refugees. As for measures adopted under the TFEU, such as national financial pledges, an emergency relocation mechanism, a new hotspot approach, ensuring effective return, in-kind assistance, resettlement and humanitarian admission programs, these are not working in a way to produce real burden sharing between EU member states and solidarity with neighbouring countries to Syria. The latest agreement with Turkey clearly demonstrates cooperation between the EU and Turkey, but for the wrong reason, and with potentially disastrous consequences for refugees displaced by the war in Syria. First, the deal aims to limit people's opportunity to seek asylum in other states by proposing to establish safe, so safe zones in Syria. Second, it provides a blanket return policy for Syrian refugees arriving in, in Greece from Turkey back to Turkey in exchange for resettlement. Hence, it assumes Turkey as a safe country. Third, it seeks the involvement of the UNHCR, the IOM and other IOs in an attempt to legitimate the deal. This agreement seriously questions the role of Europe in a globalised world, which is another key priorities in the Stockholm Protocol uh, programme of 2010. In some Recent state practice in neighbouring countries to Syria confirms that temporary refuge encompasses more than an obligation to non-refoulement. Temporary refuge also imposes an obligation on receiving states with the assistance of international organisations to provide basic rights commensurate with human dignity. The Syrian war has lasted five years and has so far produced 4.8 million refugees. It is not going to end anytime soon. In a situation of protracted conflict, the rule of temporary refuge further imposes an obligation on states and international organizations to cooperate and to take concrete steps towards durable solution. Indeed, the promise of a more sustainable solution and of financial and material support from the international community is the linchpin of temporary refuge. Based on recent state practice, including evidence of practice in EU documents, the following general remarks may be made. 
For the last five years, neighbouring countries to Syria have fulfilled, to some extent, their part of the bargain through a largely open-door policy, and they have allowed refugees to stay in their territory, albeit, albeit with less and less rights over the years. In stark contrast, EU member states have largely closed their doors and continues to use their national asylum procedures to assess and grant protection. The mindset has remained on the individual and permanent asylum and on obstructing access to protection. From the perspective of neighbouring countries to Syria, this collective dimension referred to by Guy, mainly the international community's responsibility to find solutions to large-scale influxes of asylum seekers, has not been forthcoming. EU member states, in particular, have come up with new strategies to minimise avenues for resettlement, opting instead to help financially. <coughs> Indeed, the EU is the leading donor in the international response to the Syrian crisis, with over 5 billion euros in humanitarian development, economic and stabilisation assistance. Part of this response is the recent EU Commission announcement of 445 million euros in humanitarian aid to help Syrian civilians displaced by the conflict. This funding will be channeled through the UN and international partners and the implementation of a new UN initiative, the Regional Refugee and Resilience Plan, the 3RP. The funding will be allocated uh, per country. Syria is to receive 140 million euros, Turkey 165, Lebanon 87, Jordan 53. This new strategy, which is the first of its kind, is aimed at helping these countries respond to the effects of the Syrian crisis through critical humanitarian response measures and medium-term investments in services, economies and institutions such as food, aid, health, water, sanitation, hygiene and education. But it is still too early to say whether this new strategy will have any effect on the absence of burden sharing, which still today constitutes a serious shortcoming in the refugee protection regime. So to conclude, temporary refuge has clear implications for international solidarity, i.e. burden sharing. Guy's key proposition that the protection of persons displaced by war is not only about admission, there is also a collective dimension which engages the institutional and the international community at large, remains true today. However, the Syrian case reveals the politics of this collective dimension to be complex and challenging and suggests the limitations of collaborative or joint state action in this area. Thank you. <laughs>